Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. Amen. Well, hey, if you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Judges chapter 6 is where we're going to be spending our time. Actually, chapters 6 through 8, we're going to be doing a character study on uh, Gideon. Tonight, we're going to look at at Gideon uh, in in Judges chapters 6 through 8. Essentially, the the account of Gideon is found here in Judges 6 through 8, and the book of Judges is in the historical genre of Scripture. And that matters because when you think about the things in the Bible and you think about how to interpret them, what kind of literature you're reading matters. One of the big things to keep in mind when you're reading the, the historical portion of Scripture is that just because it says it doesn't mean I should do it. Some of the things are descriptive, not prescriptive. It's not necessarily telling us what to do all the time. Sometimes it's just telling us what happened. And so as we look at Judges, this is in the historical genre of literature, and it's, it's important for us to grab that idea. Um, the idea of a judge, maybe when you think of the word judges and you think of this book, Judges, you think of somebody sitting with a gavel, uh, you know, at a, uh, you know, one of those benches, and they're like de- declaring things wrong or right or whatever. That's not the idea of a judge here as, as far as biblically speaking. It could mean that, uh, but it also could mean to vindicate or deliver. And that's what the, the book of Judges is all about. It's about God raising up certain people to vindicate, to deliver his people from their oppression, from their dominance in sin and idolatry. And then as God raises these people up, he gives them the ability to uh, lead his people out of their sinfulness. And there are a number of different judges that are raised up. And, and what we see as we look at the, the book of Judges is a number of cycles. Uh, in Judges chapter 2, verse 16, it says this, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who would deliver them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So that's the idea of what these judges would be doing. That's the, the whole concept of the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges is dis- divided into essentially seven cycles. You see the cycle happen over and over over and over again. And before you uh, get too excited about that cycle and say, those poor Israelites, why are they diving into sin again? I think we need to stop and see that we have the tendency to be the same as them. That I have this tendency to, to go back into the same cycles of sin in my life. And if I'm not careful to pursue the Lord, then what I end up doing is the exact same thing that they do. And so what we see through these cycles is we see that the people sin, they reject God, they turn to their idolatry. And then God, God brings judgment. His judgment comes, and usually this is the oppression of an enemy. That an enemy comes to take out uh, the, the Israelites or to take them captive. And then God's people cry out. The pain of discipline, the pain that they're going through, drives them back to the Lord. And that's the point. That's the point of the pain. When we experience pain in our lives as a result of sin, the point is to get us to go back to the Lord. It's not because God's mad at you. It's not because he's trying to punish you or he's just, you know, like got a big giant hammer up in heaven waiting for you to mess up so he can just smash you. That's not God. He's not, that's not who he is. He, the pain of, of this is to cause you to cry out to him. And then we see that God's deliverer rises. 
The people cry out because of their pain. God raises a deliverer, uh, and in His grace and mercy, the judge defeats their enemies, and then God's people are shown in repentance. And then the cycle starts all over again. The people fall back into sin. And Judges chapter 6, verse 1 is the beginning of the fourth of these seven cycles, and this is where we find the account of Gideon. So as we look at uh, Gideon's life, I want to encourage you with this idea. Here's our big idea for today. It's this, that God's commandments are God's enablements. That when God tells you to do something, He simultaneously is going to provide the capacity and the ability for you to accomplish the thing that He tells you to do. God's commandments are God's enablements. And if you want to write a scripture reference next to that, you can write Hebrews 11.34, which essentially states that out of weakness they were made strong. That out of weakness they were made strong. And so let's, uh, let's take a look at uh, Judges chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because the Midianites, uh, because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, the strongholds, which are in the mountains. And so chapter 6 opens with a very bleak outlook. You see that there in the very beginning? It says, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's a a clear distinction for us to grasp in this is that whenever we're thinking about evil, it's not arbitrary, it's not random, it's not just something that we get to pick and choose. We don't decide what evil is. God decides what evil is. God chooses what is good. God chooses what is right and wrong. When when God was writing uh, the Ten Commandments, it wasn't this arbitrary choice that He was making and distinguishing, well, should I make this good or bad? When when they came uh, to murder, God wasn't sitting in heaven with a coin, flipping the coin and saying, all right, Moses, let's figure it out. What's it going to be? And He flips the coin and it lands on heads and He says, all right, it's it's bad. Write it, Moses. That's not the way that God's commandments work. That's not the way that evil works. Evil is evil because it's inconsistent with the character and nature of God. It is wrong because it's not in line with who He is. And so when we read here that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, that is always the way that evil works. It's always in the sight of the Lord. It's always to His standard. It's always by His uh, ability to establish reality based on who He is. Now, they had been enticed into believing a lie, Israel did, and they had chosen rebellion and rejection against God. They decided, God, we don't need you. We don't, we don't really want your way. Your way is too restrictive. God, get with the times. I mean, you're kind of old school. Do you really realize what's going on in our world today? You, you really figure out what's happening with us. You're, you're really holding us down. You're, you're not open-minded enough. And the result was, notice there at the end of verse 1, that they were enslaved by Midian for seven years. For, for seven years. Um, they're living in fear. They're living in caves. They have no food. There's great poverty. And the one question that I have as I read this is, why did it take seven years? Why did they sit in this painful situation with, with the enemies taking all of their stuff? They literally don't have any food. Uh, they, they don't have anywhere to live. They're living in the caves trying to get away from the enemy. And they waited in that state for seven years. I think that for us, one of the things we can take away from this is that the right time to repent is right now. 
As soon as you know that you're in sin, as soon as you feel the pain and discomfort of the result of that sin, that's the right time to repent. You don't need to beat yourself up for a certain period of time or season. You don't need to to go through some sort of emotional steps or anything like that. The, The right time to repent is right now. It's the very moment that God says to you, this is wrong, this is not consistent with who I am, that's the moment in which you abandon those things and repent. You see, when God says don't, what he's saying is don't hurt yourself. He's not withholding good from you. He's not, he's not restricting you in some way and saying that you shouldn't have this. You see, if, if you were to believe that God is withholding something good from you, it's to go back to the very, very first thing that took place, the very first temptation that came in Genesis chapter 3 when, when Satan came to Eve. And he said, he said to Eve, God's, God's withholding something from you. And if you just ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then, then you would know what God knows. Then you would be like Him. Then you would have what you're longing for. God had already given them everything that they needed. And the lie, the deception from the enemy was for, for them, for Adam and Eve, and for us today to think that somehow God isn't good. That somehow He's withholding good from us. It, re- it reminds me of uh, my oldest daughter, Haley, she's sitting here with us uh, tonight. Uh, she's uh, 14 years old and, and nearly six feet tall. Um, I get to be a, you know, I don't know, I'm going to coach her in something. We'll figure out what she likes. But um, just, uh, uh, you know, I, I think about her when she was little, when she was about 18 months old. I did what any good dad would do in parenting and in uh, discipling my children in the Lord. I fed her steak. Right, so I, I would get her and I would sit her on my lap and uh, I would have my plate and I would just cut pieces of steak from my plate and I would feed it to her and she was all about that. Um, when she got a little bit older, she would say, Daddy, give me the pink meat, right? She, she knows that you cook it medium, don't overcook it, you ruin your steak, uh, but she, she knows how to cook it right, you know? And so she's, I'm discipling her in the ways of the Lord and feeding her the glory of steak and uh, she is in her little 18-year-old, 18-month-old mind, she's trying to figure out uh, what's going on and what's happening in front of her. She sees me using the fork and the knife and cutting the steak and she reaches out to grab the knife and like, like any good dad would do, I said, oh, you want to play with that honey here, sweetheart? Go ahead. And she grabbed the knife and then she was like this. Right? No, of course not. I didn't hand her the knife. That'd be dangerous for all of us. And so I held the knife away from her and she lost her mind. Right? Anybody with kids know what I'm talking about? lost her mind, screaming at me, looking at me like I'm evil, and the only thing that would pacify her was more steak. So I put more steak in her mouth, and she's good for a few few more minutes. But she's believing that I'm wrong, that I'm evil, that I'm withholding something good from her. She knows she wants it, and so therefore it must be right. It must be good. It must be appropriate. Dad, you should give this to me. And yet, as a good dad, I don't give it to her because I love her. Not because I'm mad at her, not because I don't like her, not because I just want to dangle it in front of her and say, look what you could have, but sorry, sweetheart, I really don't want to bless you with this thing. No, because I know that if I give this to her right now, she's going to injure herself and other people. Now, in the future, there's coming a day, and there is a day now, where I can hand her a knife and she can cut her own steak, praise the Lord, uh, and, you know, things are okay. But that's the way that things are in our lives as well with the Lord. Sometimes God withholds things from you, things that you want, things that you think you need, 
things that make you so angry and frustrated with God because he just didn't give it to you. He just didn't do your thing. He just didn't come through the way that you thought he should. He didn't provide for you what you thought you should have. And, and we get angry with him at these times. And, and, and what we've got to realize is that sometimes God isn't giving it to us because we're just not mature enough for it yet. Maybe one day there will be a day when he can give it to you. Maybe there are some things in your life that they're not sinful, they're not bad, they're not wrong, but he's never going to give them to you. Because for you, it would, it would cause great injury. Because for you, it's not something that you should ever have. But, but God, why do they get it? Why do they have it? Well, why, why are they able to have these things? Uh, it's, it's not for you. Uh, it, that's between you and the Lord. Allow him to decide what's going to take place. Allow him to be the good dad that he is and to be able to to lead you and direct you. You see, there's a deception into thinking that we know better. And that's where Israel was. They had abandoned God. They thought they knew better. They thought they could do their thing their way. And the result was that they were living in blatant evil sin. James chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There, there is nothing wrong with God. And the deception is for us to believe that somehow there is. Somehow God is withholding good from me. Somehow God is not doing what, what He should. And I am not receiving what I should from the Lord. And that's, it's just a deceptive thing. In giving into that deception, we pursue bondage and call it freedom. We put ourselves in prison and say we're free. How, how foolish. How foolish. Sin always fails to deliver. It always costs too much. And it always takes away what you think you're going to get. That's what sin does. Every time. Every single time. And when we fall into that temptation, we see the devastating effects. In verse, verse 7, skip down a little bit if you would, it says, And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel. Notice that it says there that, that uh, the people finally cry out for deliverance. They live under this bondage and this, this uh, tyranny for seven long years, and they finally cry out to God for deliverance. But notice what God gave them in verse 8. It says, The Lord sent a prophet. Didn't send a deliverer. He didn't, send a, he didn't send a deliverer, they, he sent a prophet. And the prophet preached the Bible to them. You see that there at the, as you continue on through verses 8 and 9? He, he, the prophet preaches the scriptures to the people. You see, your greatest need is not to be rescued from your circumstance. Whatever that thing is in your life, whatever that thing is that you're hoping it'll go away, you're hoping it'll be resolved, you're hoping that God will just fix it and take you out of it and that, that I'm just done with this thing, your greatest need is not to be rescued from that circumstance. Your greatest need, your greatest need is to know where your life is not in line with Scripture and to repent. And that's why a prophet was sent. Because before they could experience deliverance, they needed to go through repentance. Repentance always comes before deliverance. Obedience before deliverance. And so the people were, were brought the Scriptures before the deliverer ever rises up. Now notice in Judges Chapter 6, verses 11 through 16, we see that Gideon is called. Not only do we see that uh, Israel is in rebellion, but we see, number two, that Gideon is called. Verses 11 through 16 of Judges chapter 6. Verse 11, it says this. 
And the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was at Ophrah, not Oprah, Ophrah, uh, which belonged to Joash, the Bezerite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midians, Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appear, appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, now God here intervenes in the situation when the people turn to him. They, they finally turn, they cry out to him. God brings this prophet, raises up this prophet, and then God now meets with Gideon. When you see there that it says the angel of the Lord, uh, that is a pre-incarnate uh, um, uh, appearance of, of Jesus. It's called a Christophany or a Theophany, if you want to look those ideas up. And we'll see a little bit later on that clearly this is God revealing himself to Gideon. And so God shows up to Gideon and says, Gideon, I am calling you to something. Now the, the place of his calling, notice what it says there, that he's, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. What, what a wine press is, is it's a pit that is dug for crushing grapes. You, you dig a pit out, you crush grapes in there, it's usually enclosed, uh, and uh, it's, it's somewhere that he, you know, you'd be able to, uh, to do this kind of work of, of crushing grapes. Uh, it is the opposite of where you want to be to thresh wheat. Well, when you thresh wheat, especially in this day, what you would do is you would crush the kernels of grain and then you would take it up on top of a, like a mountaintop or a hill and you would take a, a, a towel or some sort of blanket, put all the wheat inside there and you would toss it up into the air. The wind would blow the chaff away, the outside covering. The kernel of wheat would fall back down. So that's how you thresh wheat. That's what you would do. But, but that's not where Gideon is. Gideon's doing this work in a wine press, which is down low, which is enclosed. I'm sure he's having a really rough day. Like, how do you do that exactly? How does this work out? Uh, I'm, I'm sure he's really frustrated by this, but notice it tells us why. Uh, it's, it says at the end of verse 11, in order to hide it from the Midianites. I'm sure dude is hungry. He's ready for some bread. And so he's trying to thresh some wheat, and he's trying to figure out how to do this, and how can I do this, you know, covertly so that I don't end up getting this stolen away by the Midianites. And so he's doing that there. It's clear that Gideon is hiding. Now, God didn't choose Gideon, just a little tip, God didn't choose Gideon because he had these amazing covert farming skills. Like, man, that guy, I need him on my team. That's not why the Lord shows up and chooses Gideon. You see, Gideon is, is, is chosen by the Lord because of what God can do through him, not because of who he is. Notice there what, what it says in verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. God calls Gideon a mighty man of valor. Now, just based on what we know about him so far, I don't think mighty man, I don't know what you think about when you think mighty man of valor. I think like He-Man or something like that. Uh, but I don't think guy hiding in a wine press from the enemy. That, that's not what I think about. I think that if, if we were to, to sort of um, put some labels on the way that Gideon is acting at this time, it would be best described by cowardice, by weakness, by doubt, that he's unstable, he's unwavering, he's uncertain. He's anything but a mighty man of valor. It's kind of crazy there that God would say this to him, that God would speak this to him. But God saw who Gideon could be and who he would be in the Lord. 
Not who Gideon necessarily was on his own, and not who Gideon could be if he just tried really hard, but God saw who Gideon could be if he would trust in and rely on the Lord. And so this this proclamation of being a mighty man of valor is a prophecy over Gideon's life in terms of who God would make him to be if only Gideon would submit himself into the hands of God and allow God to move in his life. You see, God is not looking for a better version of you. That's not what he's looking to do. He didn't redeem you and rescue you and call you out of sin and darkness and depravity in order to sort of just kind of make you a better version of you. No, he's called you out of that to completely change who you are, to totally transform you. We don't need a better version of you. We need the redeemed version of you. And if we don't have that, then there is no hope for the Lord to use you in the ways that he wants to. God's calling is simultaneously a promise of transformation. As he says to Gideon, you mighty man of valor, he's calling him into this. Follow me, Gideon. I'm going to do something with your life. Stuff you would never imagine I would do with you. But the only way you get there is by following me because I'm going to, I'm going to change you. I'm going to change you. You couldn't do it on your own. Verses 13 through 15, we see that Gideon essentially blasphemously questions God's character by uh, attacking the the prophet's message in verses 8 through 10. Uh, Basically, Gideon, you know, isn't questioning God's ability, but he's questioning God's goodness. He's saying, if God is so awesome, if our forefathers tell all these stories about how God came through and took care of them, then why in the world do we not see God doing that for us today? What's wrong with God? Is God some sort of absentee landlord? Did he vacate the throne? Is he taking a nap? What's going on? Because he did it for them, but he's not doing it for us. And what he's foolishly doing is he's taking their sinfulness and he's saying, God, it's your fault. Don't we do the same thing? Don't we take our foolish, sinful position and somehow blame it on God and say, God, you're the one that did it? You're the one who put me here. You're the one who isn't doing stuff for me. I, I don't really want to repent. I don't really want to seek your face. I just want your stuff. I want you to give me my sin and your blessing. And God doesn't play that game. He doesn't play that game. But notice where in uh, verse 14, the Lord should have killed Gideon where he stood. He says something completely, completely miraculous and insane to me. It says in verse 14, Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? It's just grace upon grace from the Lord right there. He, he should have just struck Gideon where he stood. And yet, and yet, he ignores his blasphemy and just calls him deeper and deeper into this. Look at verse 16. It says this, And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. God mercifully ignores Gideon's blasphemy and promises his presence as the ability to produce the victory. You see, God being with you is the crux of all Christian service. It's not your great ability. It's not how much you know. It's not being able to um, amass a bunch of, uh, of uh, capacity or your ingenuity and craftiness. That's not, that's not what causes you to be able to serve the Lord. It's God's presence with you. That's what causes you to be able to serve the Lord. Gideon was called to faith in God's plan and God's ability, not to his own strategizing and cunning and craftiness. God had called him to trust in him and to abandon his own way. Well, thirdly, what we see here is that Gideon, he needs to be grown. Now that Gideon is called, 
He's got to be grown. You've got to be developed in order to be used of the Lord. And so we see that happening in verses 17 through 40. Look at verse 17 if, with me, if you would. It says this, Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it's you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. You see, now that the calling is established, Gideon's got to be developed. His relationship in the Lord has got to be developed. And so Gideon rightly seeks to ensure that his faith is placed in God. He doesn't foolishly just say, well, someone showed up and said some stuff to me. I'm just going to believe whatever they said. He rightly starts to evaluate, is this God speaking to me? Is this the word of the Lord or is this just some random person saying some stuff? Or maybe I just hallucinated because I'm working really hard in a wine press like a silly, crazy guy. And you know, maybe it's really hot in there and he hallucinates, right? He could be thinking all sorts of different kinds of things. And so he rightly says, let me make sure that this is, this is the Lord. And so we see here that in the Old Testament, the appearance of God he seemed to be a man. When God appeared to Abraham and Jacob and Joshua and now Gideon, they, um, they immediately saw him as a man the first, at, the, at the first. And then they came to understand that it was the Lord. And so Gideon asked this man to prove his authority and his deity. And so God reveals himself through some miraculous ways. Look at verse 20. It says this, Then the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay uh, them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. God reveals himself through receiving the worship. You see that there? Whenever you're wondering in scripture about the, the, the phrase the angel of the Lord, is this an angel or is this God? Well, God alone receives worship. Whenever it's an angel and people and an angel shows up and people start to worship the angel, the angel stops them and says, "Get up! I'm a servant just like you. I don't deserve your worship. Worship only belongs to God." So, if the angel of the Lord receives worship, that's a clear indication that it's the Lord, that it's God Himself. And so, He receives this this worship. He uh, in verse twenty, in verse twenty one, He miraculously accepts the sacrifice. Puts out the end of a stick. Fire comes out of the rock, consumes the sacrifice, and then miraculously disappears. And Gideon clearly believed that he had been with God and not mere man. Notice what it says in, in verse twenty two. Now Gideon perceived that he had he was uh, the angel of the Lord, and so Gideon said, "Alas." O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. He believed wholeheartedly, I've seen God, and now I'm going to die. But God gives him peace and says, Relax, Gideon. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, we read this. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Don't just believe somebody because they say they're talking on, on behalf of God. Don't just believe people just because they say, I have a word of the Lord from you. It may not be the word of the Lord at all. We have to test the spirits and make sure that they line up with who God is because if God is gonna speak to you, he's not gonna contradict himself. The Holy Spirit is not gonna contradict himself and so we can be sure, sure and certain of that. Now, in verses 25 through 27, 
we have written here for us something pretty amazing uh, in, this, in this section. Uh, and I think it's a, a really important part. I'm, I'm not going to be able to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I just want to point out to you that we see that God now calls Gideon to something else. Now that, now that God is established in Gideon's life, he calls him to his first step of obedience. Look at verse 25. It says this, Now it came to pass... From the same, uh, it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal, or Baal, however you want to say that, your father, uh, your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down, and so Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And so here we see that there's, there's this interaction that God has with Gideon, the first thing he tells him to do. And I think it carries significant weight in terms of helping us to understand something about our lives. You see, God commands him in this first step of obedience. And if God is going to use us, we cannot remain in our sin. Gideon couldn't stay in his sin and be used by God. It wasn't going to work that way. God was calling him to his first step of obedience, and it was to get rid of his idolatry. You need to deal with your idolatry, Gideon. And so here is the way as God uh, deals with Gideon, it reveals to us four necessary components to change. Four necessary components to being free from idolatry, being free from sin. If you have sin that is gripping your heart and gripping your life, if you have an idol that's raised up in your life, we are given four principles of how to pursue that freedom, of how to be set free from these things in our lives. There's four necessary components to this. Number one, you've got to recognize the idol as sin. You can't call it something else. You can't put a nice label on it. You can't say, well, the world says it's this and it just doesn't sound as bad as sin. No, you gotta say, this is sin. This is an abomination to God. It's evil in the sight of God. It's not an affair, it's adultery. It's not having fun, it's getting high. It's getting drunk. It's not, it's not well, I'm just you know, taking care of my family. It's cheating on your taxes. It's theft, it's stealing. We've got to label it what it really is. And we've got to look at it for what it truly is. It's an idol in my life. And as long as you let the idol stay in your life, your usefulness for God will be diminished severely. You will not be able to be used by the Lord the way that he wants to use you so long as you leave idols in your life. So number one, you've got to recognize the idol is sinful. Number two, you've got to repent of your sin. Right? You, can, you can recognize that it's wrong right, and still fail to repent. You can say, this is wrong, this is, this is sinful, this is idolatrous, and, and yet not repent. Repentance literally just means to turn away from and turn toward. That's the idea of repentance. You, you, have, a, you have a front to you. You're facing a certain direction. Repentance is to say, I'm no longer going to face this direction toward my sin, toward my idolatry. I'm going to turn and face toward the Lord. I'm going to face toward Jesus. You can't stop facing your sin and start facing another sin and call it repentance, right? You don't trade one problem for another. That's not repentance. That's foolishness. You turn from your sin, you turn to Jesus, that's repentance. That's repentance. So number one, recognize your sin. Number two, repent of your sin. That's what we see Gideon do. Thirdly, remove the sin, right? God says, Tear down the idol. 
Take the pole that's next to it. Chop it up. We're going to burn this thing up. Burn this thing up. We're not going to leave it there in case we need it for the future. No, we don't need that. There's only one right thing to do with an idol. You burn it up. You chop it down. You kill the idol. You don't leave it in your life. There's, that's the only right thing to do with it. Remove the sin from your life. And then fourthly, and this is where a lot of people don't take this last step. You can recognize that it's sinful. You can repent of it and you can tear it down in your life. But if you don't do this fourth crucial step, what will happen is you'll find yourself enslaved to either that sin or another sin later on in life. We've got to replace that idolatry, that idolatrous sinful stuff with worship to God. Notice that, it, that God told him, cut down the idol and then use it as a place of an altar for me. Worship me instead of that, of that idol. And so God says, replace it. Replace it with worship to God. Now, if Gideon couldn't do this, he couldn't lead God's people. This was primary importance. This had to happen before anything else could. And so God calls him to this and calls him out. And man, I just want to encourage you in this. You are called to lead. You have to go first in this. If you want to see God change your life, if you want to see God move in your church, if you want to see God change this city, if you want to see God moving in ways that you've never experienced before, men, you and I, we need to go first. We must say, I will no longer make room for sin in my life. I will no longer allow these idols to remain in my life. I will cut them down. I will burn them down in the name of Jesus, and I will replace it with worship to him. I guarantee you, if you do that, you'll experience God's presence in your life like you've never experienced before. You'll experience God moving in your life like you have never experienced before. And until you're willing and ready to do that, you cannot see God move in your life the way that you want to. This is required. This has to happen. This has to go first. And if you are not willing to go first, then God will find somebody else who will. You see, God was gonna deliver his people well, with or without Gideon but he's inviting Gideon in. You get to be a part of this with me, Gideon. And God's calling you to the same. Will you, will you be obedient? And so notice what it says there in verse 27. It says at the end, but because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. I'm gonna throw Gideon a bone on this one. The dude did it, right? Like, awesome, Gideon, way to go. He, he, took, he took care of business. He did, he did it at night, he was afraid, but he did it. Sometimes you just got to do it scared. The fear's not going to go away. It's not, you're not going to get this overwhelming peace of God to move forward in that thing and destroy that sin in your life. You're just going to be scared and you got to do it anyway. Obedience doesn't get run by our feelings. We choose to force our feelings to follow obedience. And when we do that, God, God is able to move in ways in our lives that we, we never dreamed possible. When fear keeps you from obedience, it's sinful. In the verses 36 through 40, we see that Gideon does something. It's one of the things that Gideon is most known for is this idea of a fleece, putting out a fleece before the Lord. We see that um, uh, God is, is moving in Gideon's life in crazy ways. And, and Gideon sort of has this time where he puts out a fleece before God. And I just want to encourage you with this idea uh, that, that this, is, this is one of those areas. Remember I told you in the beginning that we're in the historical genre of Scripture? Some things are descriptive not prescriptive, I would, I would submit to you that this is not something you should be doing as a Christian practice. 
putting out fleeces before God, even that terminology, uh, what I would say to you is that this is a lapse of faith for Gideon. This isn't some some awesome step of faith and courage that Gideon is having. God has clearly spoken to Gideon. God has revealed himself in miraculous ways to Gideon. God has shown himself faithful and shown himself strong on Gideon's behalf. God has met him in his weakness and carried him through. God has saved his life in the middle of, uh, of uh, men trying to, to kill him as a result of taking him down that idol. Look at, the, look at verse 34. It says there that uh, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet and an army shows up. God is moving in crazy ways in Gideon's life. And then Gideon goes, yeah, but I don't know if really God is doing this in me and I'm just going to put out a fleece, God. So, here, so here's the deal, God. Uh, I don't want you to talk to me. I just want you to do something. I want you to show me a sign. God's been speaking to Gideon. He doesn't need a sign. Okay, make the ground dry and the fleece wet. And God condescends to Gideon. Gideon wakes up in the morning. He takes the, the fleece, wrings it out. There's a bowl full of water, not like a drop. You know, it's not like, well, some dew got on it, so I guess that counts. No. Unmistakable exclamation point. I'm with you, Gideon. Whole bowl of water. And then Gideon goes, uh, I don't, uh, God, don't kill me. But can we flip it and reverse it? Let's, let's do it the other way. Make the ground wet and the, and the fleece dry. And he wakes up the next morning and it is. And so Gideon's like, okay, well, I guess I have to do it. And so he, he moves forward. This is not something, this is not virtuous for Christianity, right? This is not the way you treat your relationship with God. God has clearly spoken. You, you don't make him jump through hoops just so that you can feel better about it, right? That, that's, that's not faith. That's fear. And so in chapter 7, we see that Gideon is equipped. Look at verse 1 in chapter 7 with me, if you will. I'm going to take a drink of water real quick. Chapter 7, verse 1 says this, Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, they changed his name because of how he cut down that idol. So Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, uh, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod's, uh, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, in verses 1 and 2, we see here that God is concerned that the people will claim the victory as theirs. That he, he says, hey, you guys... Uh, Gideon, you blew the trumpet because my spirit came upon you. That's awesome. Uh, a bunch of people show up. That's great. But you've got too many soldiers. And if you go into battle like this, you're going to be tempted to think that this had something to do with you. And I needed to be really clear, Gideon, this has nothing to do with you at all. This is all because of me. Now, Midian's army, if you look at uh, chapter 8, verse 10, you can, see it'll, you can see there that there's some numbers given to us there uh, that, that could be all of the army or it could be a portion of the army, but I'm just going to use it as a reference so that we can kind of figure out what's happening here. If you look at chapter 8, verse 10, uh, the army there is about uh, 135,000, all right? That's the bad guys, 100, 135,000 bad guys. Israel's army is 32,000, all right? So quick math, that's four to one, right? So, so it's four to one, and God says, you have too many people. I, I don't know about you, but I don't think I could take out four dudes on my own. Like, I'll try right now if somebody wants to come up here. I'm just kidding. Don't come up here. Um, right? Like, God says, you're going you're gonna to think you did this. So we need to cut this down. So how does he do it? Look at verse 3. Now, therefore, 
here's what God says to, to Gideon to do. Now, therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever's fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Can you, is the movie playing in your head? Can you see what's happening right now? What if you're one of the 10,000? Is your heart melting right now? Uh, here's what I'm wondering. Why'd those guys show up in the first place? Like, they, like what's going on? Here's what happened. Here, I, I, don't, I can't guarantee it because the Bible doesn't say it, but here's my thought, okay? Here's probably what happened because I know how guys work. One guy says to his neighbor, hey, bro, so you're going to go fight Midian? And he's like, of course. What, what do you think, man? Yeah, I'm going. Are you going? Yeah. Yeah, let's go. And so then, like, yeah, I, I mean, you're, I'm not going to let you go, and I'm not going to go. Yeah, of course I'm going to go. And then they show up, and Gideon says, hey, if anyone's afraid, you can just go home. 22,000 leave. Like, wow. Okay. Kind of a crazy situation. Verse, verse 4, but the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Okay, so at this point, with, with two-thirds of the people leaving, they're down to 10,000. That's 13 and a half to one, right? That's, that's bad odds. But God says, nope, still not right. Still not. I don't know if you're like Chuck Liddell and you can beat up some fools in UFC or whatever, but like 13 people, I don't know, unless you're Hulk, you got no chance, bro. Like, that's pretty crazy. That's pretty crazy odds. 13 and a half to one. And so then God sends away some more, and he says, there's too many. And so he tells them, here's what I want you to do. Get some guys to drink some water. Go down to the water. And the guys that uh, bring the water, scooping it up and lapping it, uh, set those guys off to, their, to one side. And the guys who get down on their knees and put their face in the water, set those guys off to the other side. And so he's going to make two different groups. Now, as Gideon is going through all this, there's only a few, a handful of guys of the 10,000 300 of them bring the water up and, and lap it that way. Now, some commentators want to say that, you know, the reason that Gideon chose those guys was because, you know, they were had steely eyes looking out into the distance and they were bringing the water up to their faces and they were just always ready. I, I kind of want to believe that maybe they just had bad backs or something and they couldn't stoop down. Like, I don't know. Like, that just seems the way that things are going here. There's so 300 of them do that. And 9,700 don't, right? I mean, imagine you're Gideon running up and down the stream, like, where's the dude lapping with his hand? You know, where are they at? I, I, oh, there's one. Oh, there's another one. You know, and, and you get 300 of them. And God says, all right, send the rest home. This is, this is insane. Now, this is, this is 450 to 1 odds that, that they're going into. And then God says, yep, that's, now you're ready, boys. Let's go to war. You see, God operates and functions in these impossible situations. They're His choice environment for working because it can't be confused with your glory. There, there's no confusion as to who did this. Gideon is not really smart and just got 300 guys. If you watch the History Channel, that's what they'll tell you. That's wrong. But the, the, don't get your theology from the History Channel, okay? The reason this happened was because God was declaring my glory, my ability, my power, my spirit, my presence, not you, me. And if we don't get that, then we'll be tempted to think it had something to do with us. 
when it only has something to do with the Lord. It's utterly impossible. It's, impro- it's impossible to improperly apply credit for the victory. And so, verse 7, the Lord said to Gideon, by these 300 men who've lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. And so God emphasizes his presence is what produces victory. Not their cunning, not their ingenuity, not their brute strength, not their numbers, not their craftiness. They were in trouble as a result of their own wrongdoing. And it was only going to be God's presence and their obedience to him that would bring them out of, out of that bondage. In, verses, in chapter 7, verse 8, all the way through chapter 8, verse 21, we see that Gideon is victorious. This is where Gideon takes the battle uh, to the uh, Midianites and destroys them. Look at verse 9. It says this, And it happened in the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise and go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, uh, but if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. And then we read that he actually goes down with Purah, his servant. After all, I mean, I'd be freaking out too, I think. Right? There's an innumerable army, and I got 300 guys that can't even bend down. And we're going to go to war. All right? So he's pretty freaked out. He goes down to the camp of the Midians, and so God speaks to him. Now, this is the seventh time that God has clearly spoken to Gideon. And what I see here is this crazy contrast that that Gideon, so long as he's willing to let his fear overtake him, he's not willing to move forward in the things that God wants him to do. He's He's going really slowly. But as soon as fear is overcome by faith and he trusts in what God says, even though he can't see it, even though it doesn't all make sense, even though he can't get it to all figure out and work out, God moves in miraculous and mighty ways. God moves in ways in Gideon's life that he couldn't have seen. You see, God has told Gideon what to do step by step all the way through. He didn't blindly jump into action in his own time or in his own way to try to make God's call happen. He did what God called him to do. I remember um, when I, I, I got saved when I was 17 years old. Uh, I heard a message and, and it was in this huge arena and I was, it's like I was the only kid in the room and, and God was just pointing right at me and said, I want you, I want you to, be, to give your life to me. And so I, I walked forward and I did. And that same night, God called me into ministry. I had no idea what that meant, but God called me into ministry. Uh, and so uh, I started thinking about that and, and considering that. And, and one of the things that I did was I was uh, enrolled in community college. And so I was going to community college, and I thought, well, if I'm supposed to do this ministry thing, I should probably learn how to talk in front of people. I'll take a public speaking class, right? So I did that. And uh, I took the class, and um, I was, as, as I was in the class, sort of learning these different things like look at people and use your hands and use your voice to go up and down or whatever, all that kind of stuff, they had us give a speech. And so I prepare this speech, and I'm laboring over it, and I really want to impress the hot chick in the class, and so I'm really nervous about it all, and I, I give it, and I totally, totally bomb. It was, it was absolutely terrible. Uh, I think I maybe barely passed the class by the, uh, the mercy of the teacher just saying, just whatever, bro, just go ahead and go on. Uh, I did absolutely horrible. And, and what I learned through the process was I wasn't going to be able to work out in my flesh what God wanted to call me to do. I wasn't going to be able to produce it on my own. I wasn't going to be able to just make it happen. And, and, and I had to just trust in the things of the Lord and say, God, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to put the ability in me because it's not there. Uh, I'm awkward. I'm a ginger, which is weird. I, it's cool now, but it was weird when I was in high school. Like, I got beat up for that. Um, 
I'm socially just strange. I don't want to stand in front of anybody and talk to anybody about anything. If you're going to do this, you have to do it. It's got to be a miraculous move of your hand. And so God had to work that into me apart from my own ability. And so too it is with Gideon, that it wasn't going to be Gideon's ability. It was going to be God's ability. And in all of this, even though God's clearly spoken to him, he's still fearful, even though God has miraculously led him all the way up to this point. Well, look at verse 15. Basically what happens that night is that Gideon goes down to the camp and he hears a, uh, uh, a dream that a guy, one of the Midianites has. And he says, he's talking to his friend. He says, hey, I just had this crazy dream. There was this barley loaf that tumbled into the camp and it knocked over my tent. And his friend goes, oh my gosh, it's Gideon. We're all going to die. Like, How did you connect that? And uh, it was the Lord. The Lord was speaking through these pagan guys to Gideon to give him the courage to do it. In verse 15, it says, and so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshiped the Lord, right? He worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. And so God God just gives this fire to Gideon and his courage is bolstered and his faith finally overcomes his fear because he realizes in the middle of all this, those guys could never have known what's happening. And how in the world do they put together this obscure dream and say that that has something to do with me? That's got to be God. And so he finally moves forward. And so he grabs his 300 guys and he says, here's what we're going to do, guys. Here's our battle plan. Here's a trumpet. Here's a pot. We're going to go to war. It's a bad plan, bro. Like, I, I need an AR-15, man. Like, I don't know what you're doing. And so he gives them that stuff, right? He says, here's what we're going to do. hundred of you go over there. A hundred of you go over there. A hundred of you, of you stay with me. When you hear me blow my trumpet and break my pot with a torch inside, you guys do the same thing, right? That's the battle plan, okay? Sound, maybe you bumped your head, Gideon, but uh, all right, we'll, we'll try it, bro. Uh, and so we see that that's what he tells them to do. Notice what it says there in verse, verse 20. It says, Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, and they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and they cried out, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon! Verse 21, And every man stood in his place all around the camp. So get this picture in your head. They're up on the ridge. The camp's down below them. They break the pot. They've got their torch. They blow the trumpet, and they yell, and they stand there. Someone's going to get an arrow and shoot you, man. Like, that's the plan. Sometimes God's plans seem crazy, don't they? Why would I do that, God? That seems ridiculous. I'm going to be vulnerable. They're going to make fun of me. They might actually kill me, Lord. This is insane. Notice what happens. Verse 21, continuing on. And the whole army ran and cried out and fled When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Acacia. You see, in all of this, God God gives Gideon miraculous sign, calls him to faith, and then Gideon didn't even need to fight in the battle. In that, God caused the Midianites to start killing each other in the confusion of everything. And they start taking one another down. The Lord won the battle. God caused Midian to be so confused that they literally killed one another. And I want to tell you tonight that you have two great enemies. 
two great enemies that you can't defeat. They're too big for you. They're, they'll overpower you every time. There's nothing you can do against them. One of them is sin. You ever try to change yourself? How many of you started the year with a uh, New Year's resolution? Anyone courageous enough to raise their hands? Good, good for you. Anybody still doing it? <laughs> yeah. Raise your hand high. I want to call you a liar. <laughs> Man, we try to change ourselves all the time, don't we? That's why they make so much money selling those workout videos. Because we're constantly trying to change ourselves, but we just can't do it. We just can't do it. And so long as, as we try to change ourselves and try to overcome sin on our own, we will, we will be forever enslaved to it. Your other great enemy is death. It's the enemy that overtakes all of us. There's no way to escape it. And yet Jesus has defeated both of your enemies. When Jesus went to the cross, he defeated your sin, and when he rose again three days later, he defeated death. And he did it not because he needed to, but because he need, you needed him to do it for you. And by, by Jesus defeating those great enemies, he is our hope. He's the only one who can, who can accomplish the victory that we need. You see, the victory was accomplished. And in, verses, in, in the following part of, of chapter 7 through chapter 8, we see that the, the victory is thorough and complete. Go to chapter 8, verse 12. It says, when Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. See how the, it says there that the entire, the entire army is done. The, the, the victory is thorough and complete, and that's the, the victory that Jesus accomplishes for you and me. It's thorough, and it's, and it's complete. Finally, as we conclude in, ch in uh, verse, chapter 8, verses 22 through 32, we see that Gideon, he ends up foolish at the end of his life. Look at verse 22. It says this, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. You see, though he started in humility, Gideon allowed pride and compromise to overtake him in the end. Starting well is easy, finishing well is difficult. We see that as a result of the victory, the people wrongly attribute their success and newfound freedom to Gideon. And, and Gideon wisely, we see there in verse 23, he points them right back to the Lord. He says, no, it's not me, it's the Lord. He rightly and honorably points them back to God because he knew he didn't save them, that God did. But look at verse 24. It says this, then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you. And each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they said, all the guys that you killed, hey, how about you just give me the earrings from that? And so what they did was they set out a blanket, and the guys all walked by, and they threw the earrings in uh, from there. And we see there that in verse 26, that the weight of those was about uh, 1,700 shekels of gold. That's about 45 pounds of gold, or, or about... 720 ounces. Now, right now, gold is worth about $1,300 an ounce. So that's $940,000 worth of gold. Gideon would not take them putting him in the position of the Lord, but he was willing to take something from them. Hey, you know what, guys? Just, uh, just the earrings, that's all. And so he takes that. Notice what he does with it. Verse 27, then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city. 
Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon into his house. You see, while Gideon refuses the kingship, he desires the priesthood. In Exodus 28, we read about the ephod, that it's a high priestly garment made of very specific materials and design, worn to go before the Lord, and Gideon duplicates one, making it of pure gold. And in this, it's to say that I may not be your king, but you will remember my valor. It's essentially what Gideon's doing, pridefully raising himself up in that position, saying, you will remember me. Notice it says there in verse 27 that all Israel played the harlot with it. Now, this is used in Scripture of God's people abandoning him and going after their idols and their sin. You see, Gideon, he was raised up to, to, to redeem and rescue the people from idolatry, right? And he's led them right back into it. Right back. He traded one sin for another. He traded one idol for another. He led the people right back into the sinful slavery of idolatry. This is because of his pride. Because he wanted God's glory. He wanted to taste it for himself. So there's two major things to take away as we close. Number one, Jesus doesn't need your strength. He doesn't need your ability. He, because Jesus has called you, he will sustain you and he'll bring it to pass. So let him do the work that he wants to do and you just faithfully, obediently follow him. Whatever he's asked you to do, whatever he's put in front of you for right now, be faithful to that. He doesn't need your strength. Number two, take care not to allow the victory he provides to incite your flesh into thinking that it has anything to do with you. Finish well. Finish well. John 15, 5, Jesus said this, without me you can do nothing. Remember we started with this idea, Hebrews 11, 34. Out of weakness, they were made strong. Come to the Lord with your weakness and let him make you strong. Maybe tonight as you hear this and we go through this life of Gideon, you think to yourself, I've, I've never committed my life to Jesus. I hear about this idea of sin and slavery and idolatry, and I realize I'm stuck as a slave of sin. And I've never given my life to Jesus. And I want to encourage you in this moment that this is the time for you to give your life to the Lord. The right time to repent is right now. And so all you need to do is open your life up to the Lord and just commit yourself to Him. Just say, just recognize your sin before Him. Abandon it and ask Jesus for his forgiveness, and he'll forgive you. Whether you're watching online or listening on the radio, the truth is the same. And maybe, maybe for you, you've already given your life to the Lord, but still, it's a time for repentance. There's idols in your life. It's time to crush those idols and remove them and get rid of them, no longer allowing them to hold you back from all that God has for you, the way he wants to move you forward, the things that he has planned for you, the ways he wants to use you, that we pursue him wholeheartedly. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word tonight. God, thank you for the chance to study it together. We pray that tonight as we have read your word that you would show us how we can pursue you, how we can be given over to you in the things that you think matter. And so Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage and the faith to give our hearts over to you afresh and anew tonight, or maybe even for the first time and that Jesus, you'd be glorified. We pray together in your name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7283. 
888-888-7223 or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.